Hello, welcome to episode number 196 of the Apple Up Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp.com. Get affordable private online counseling anytime, anywhere. Talk with a licensed professional therapist online today. And you can start your seven-day free trial with the code word Apolog by going to uh, betterhelp.com slash Apolog. You can, uh, yeah, it's good to do. It's good to do, and it's it's private, it's affordable. What else can go wrong? It's perfect. I'd like to thank everybody for shopping on Amazon. You too can help the show out by shopping on Amazon by going to www.apolog.ca slash Amazon or apolog.ca slash US Amazon. You can do it the old-fashioned way by going to apolog.ca and click on those banners located on the right side, locate your country, and bookmark those links, and every time you shop on Amazon, use those links to shop and support the show. It costs you no extra money. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash apolog. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash apolog, A-P-O-L-O-G-U-E. Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel at any time. If you want to buy a t-shirt, if you want to buy a t-shirt, I'm, I'm getting a little excited here. If you want to buy a t-shirt, <laughs> if you want to buy a t-shirt, go to applelock.ca slash shop. And there's some music for sale there too. If you're on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Give it five stars, please. Like the show on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter at simonhead666. Today on the show, I have Mr. Michael Beinhorn, who is a record producer. He's worked on records um, like Red Hot Chili Pepper records. He worked on a social distortion record, which I thought was pretty exciting. And he's just a, uh, it was a pretty cool guy to meet because he's uh, hes kind of been doing it for a while. His very first thing he's worked was with was Herbie Hancock. So that's kind of cool too. We talk a little bit about producing, recording, what it's like to be an engineer. Um, and yeah, it was, it was cool. And what he's offering is a, a pre-production service is where you can send him a song. He will go through it and tell you what it needs to be fixed. He will tell you what's good and he'll tell you what's bad. The good part of it is that maybe he'll validate what you've been thinking about, about what the song needs or already has. Okay, so here he is, Mr. Michael Beinhorn on the Apolog Podcast. Oh, maybe we should stop. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. <laughs> oh, no. I, <laughs> I'm too tired to be scared at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a pleasure to meet you. We are recording now. Thank I you. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of work you've done that has hit radios. It's been everywhere. Um, people have enjoyed, loved, um, followed, and you've been the guy behind most of it. So uh, that's... Uh, that's a, it's an interesting concept to uh, this whole thing about you have an ear, you have a, you have a knack and an eye for whatever you you want to hear and see and what you think is, is musically pleasing, and you put it onto a onto a disc and it's somehow your you, you know you put your your mark on it in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I just get the I just get the image of a dog peeing on That's something, right. but you know. <laughs> I wasn't going for that. But yeah, it's applicable. <laughs> yeah, it's applicable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you started off as a musician, or did you start off as always as an engineer, or how did you start? 
Um, I was in a band. I wouldn't really call myself a musician because I've never been particularly good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was into electronics, into synthesizers and things of that sort. I never developed too much technical proficiency with the keyboard, um, enough to kind of work my way around. Um, but I started in a band called Material with a bassist named Bill Aswell. Uh, you know, that kind of, that was in like the late 1970s. And from there, everything just kind of built up until I did a record five years after the beginning of that band with uh, Herbie Hancock. And, you know, that was sort of the jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it's, it's a lot of musicians that like Bob Rock did the same thing. He sort of, if he had a band and made, you know, made a record and, and just sort of jumped off from that too. And do you find it, uh, artistically speaking, is it more satisfying to create with other people or is it, how is your, are you, are you an angry musician? Because, you know, perhaps you weren't, you know what I mean? Like Elvis Presley or was there, was I like when you came into it, did you, did you choose to, uh, to say, I'm going to stay with this or I'm going to, uh, or quit music? Like what was the, how did it go? Um, I, to me, like the, the thing that I enjoy most, I think is, and I think what gi gives me the particular temperament to be production in the first place is the fact that I truly enjoy collaborating with other people. To me, the idea of working, with, taking ideas and developing them is, it's a lot more appealing to me for whatever reason than having to sit down stuff on my own. I don't, I, I don't know why. I, I can certainly do that if I have to, but there's just something more engaging the creative process with other people. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons is, is that the sum, the, the end result is always so much greater than the sum of the individual parts. And it always winds up being something different than what you might have envisioned. Instead of one person's vision, you have a combination of many people's visions that have come together to create something that could truly be wonderful. And I've seen that, I've just seen that happen over and over. It's, it's very, very satisfying. Yeah, it takes, a, it takes a big person as a musician to sort of hand off their vision to and, and and have trust in the people around them not just the musicians that they play with but also the person you know recording it or turning the knobs or you know calling out um, an idea when it comes to arrangement or to specific sounds it that's amazingly like it takes a lot of uh I don't know. It just it does take a lot of guts for a musician to sort of hand it off because I get it you know as a musician it's tough you 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 want to have your vision go from to fruition you want it to be and, and some people think it might be somehow and it's been i've been on the other side of it too where they go oh no you're ruining my vision or you're you're changing what i want it to be and that's not necessarily a bad thing right um it's you, <laughs> there's so many different facets to that question yeah. um because i think yes it's very difficult as an artist especially if you've invested yourself tremendously in what you've worked on to trust that someone else who of course you do this job 
is actually going to be able to do it not only well, but do justice to what your original vision might be. Um, on the other side of it, uh, there is the fact that you are taking a, you take a leap of faith, but you have the potential to wind up with something that is so far developed from from what you from where you started. And I think that that's really that has to be the jumping off point. At the same time, there are situations, and I have seen this happen repeatedly, where someone does take that leap of faith, and it winds up that they've taken the leap of faith with the wrong person, because someone else's ego comes into play, mm -hmm. and the original vision tapped, or it gets lost in the translation of the ego of the other person, who's coming in more of a supporting role, and it's entirely different. That's unfortunate, mm -hmm. and it does happen. And it's one reason, I think, why a lot of people do, do and can potentially get frightened of working with someone who is supposed to be in, in, in a position where they have to look, be looked up to, they have to be trusted. Um, so it's a, it's, it, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky scenario to get into. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't, and you, you also don't know what the end result is going to look like. Really, yeah. Even if you have songs to work with, mm -hmm. you know. So it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And and the I was thinking while you were t the the idea that a good song is a good song. I get that part, and and whether it's however it's arranged helps the fact of how successful the song might be. But it has to sort of just start being good, you know. And you know, in my area of recording engineer, we call it turd polish polishing. We polish a lot of turds. We, you know, we get a lot of bands. We get them as far as they can go, and that's as far as they can go. But to take a really good song, and and have that uh, allow it to sort of be seen just from the fact that you worked on it, people it'll be on their desks the next week. So therefore, it has a better chance. And that is a, a true role of a, a producer as well. You know, mm -hmm. you know it's absolutely and by the same token i've seen people take great songs and demolish them. <laughs> <laughs> so it can go both ways <laughs> you know you can it's i guess what i'm just coming back to is that the whole business of recording is a very tricky one mm -hmm. and you can it, it, you if you have a if, you, as, if you have a terrific foundation, you have less chance of screwing things up. But I, uh, I, I wouldn't put put it past someone else who's capable of screwing things up to do it very, very well. <laughs> <laughs> having seen it, having seen that happen, so mm -hmm. you know. But nonetheless, the insurance policy of having the great foundation, having a great song, and also having songs that are very well structured, yeah. having songs that are well organized. You know that's that is really really important. Yeah, yeah. I've seen producers take bands that have no songs and come in with half sort of baked ideas, and none of that gets kept. What gets kept is the inspiration from the producer to tell that per those bands like go write better stuff. Like here's the idea we're going with, and and it's it comes with an idea that not necessarily what the band brings to the table is what's going to be like on the final product. So the producer has this great sort and, of like, yeah. I, you know, task of motivating, not just 
maybe even helping write, you know, and things like that, or coming up with an idea or just being in the right place. I mean, that's how communication is, uh, is sort of the foundation of it. It's like, hey, try this. And then it spurs on a lot. It frees up a log jam where great ideas come up. Yeah, it's, which is, and all that stuff is so vitally important. Um, you know, it's, it, it's also very easy to say to someone, go write more shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm allowed to say that. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> they haven't regulated just, us yet. I have to be polite. Now. No, no, it says, yeah, That's, this is good. Yeah, yeah. this is good. Yeah. Um, you know, but sometimes, sometimes people need specificity. Like they need, okay, what do you mean? What do I need to write? You know, because I, I have seen people come with that directive and say, write a hit. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. Write a hit. Like your idea of a hit and my idea of a hit can be two completely different things. It's very, it's very subjective and general terminology. So you have to come, you have to understand the psychology of the artist you're working with and to come to them in a way with a directive that they can actually use to drop something on them that they can understand and, and um, assimilate into their knowledge base so that it actually produces something, you know, so that it actually, ju- so it does jumpstart the right process instead of the process of being more confused than they were before they started. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I worked with a band up here in Canada called Treble Charger and they worked with Matt Hyde who porno for pyros uh, he'd worked you know and with a lot of people and it's amazing how he got the fire lit under them because it was they came in like same thing this is why i said the band comes in with half-baked ideas and they end up writing the biggest song in their career because matt was there to sort of feed them the motivation and that was a that was a you know a big a big game changer for me to see how what producers actually did even though i at that time i'd been kind of doing it with indie rock bands and stuff like that myself and seeing how he did it was like Holy shit! This is this is a whole different thing, you know, and it's on another level, you know. I mean, an interesting thing. I used to work with a band called Sum Forty One. I was their tour manager, and uh, yeah. they, they wrote "Fat Lip" in the back of the van while we we're driving all over the place on that first record they put out, this first EP. And I'm listening to this in the back, and I'm going, "How is this going to work? I I have no idea. Like how? But they've been instructed go write a hip hop song that has a rock beat and has a breakdown in the middle and and he did exactly what they like a science project like here write this song because these are all the things these are all the things you're gonna hit along the way that's gonna make this song possibly successful yeah. and it worked like it worked and that song yeah. became their biggest song you know it's crazy yeah. yeah yeah so do you so do you um when you you produce bands do you the collaboration part, I, I get, I get that. But have you ever just sort of said, "Yeah, maybe I'm not into working with you guys," or maybe I'm not? Have you passed on more than you've uh, you've taken on? Um, recently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, joyously, <laughs> yeah. What was that? You did it with joy. You did it with, you know, like ah, I don't need this, or um, well, joy. I, I wouldn't say that. Um, definitely a case of I don't need this. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's varying degrees of what's, I think, t- tolerable mm-hmm. doing this kind of work. And for me, one of the main things is, is there is there a pulse? Like, is there something viable that can be worked with? Mm-hmm. You know, for me, if there's something compelling about an artist, even if their songs aren't that great, if there's something compelling that I can kind of like grab, get some kind of traction with, then I'm more inclined to want to, to want to produce a record. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but a lot of artists, especially now, because in the 90s, uh, the late 90s, record companies had this thing where they bands before they were kind of really, they'd had a chance to develop and they were, they were signing artists who were still really green, you know, hadn't had a chance to ripen, so to speak, mm-hmm. and go through their process to get to a place of real, you know, natural maturity. So you don't really know what an artist sounds like or what they're thinking or what they're doing. And ever since that time, it's, it's become very difficult or increasingly difficult to, to find artists who have a very original sound, um, at least to the extent of a sound garden or a soul asylum, you know, mm-hmm. or an artist that's really, really noticeable, identifiable. Um, and, and that's harder because this whole thing of like, you got to get out there really fast, you know, like you're going to get signed. If you're worth shit, you're going to get signed within like two weeks of your first gig, like hitting a clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, all that stuff was happening in, in the early 90s. And it was really scary to see these artists who, who really who weren't in any position to go into a recording studio have like major bidding wars happen over them. Mm-hmm. Like, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. You know, but that's commonplace now. You know, except there's not, there's no money to be able to have a bidding war anymore. So like, yeah. you know, you'll, you'll get nothing and like it. And they'll, <laughs> and they'll take a cut of your tour shirts too at the same time. You know, those, those, what do they call them? 360 um, deals? 360. Yeah. yeah. You cut of your tour, cut of your, um, of your publishing. Think about 20 years ago. Screen. If someone said to Soundgarden, like, we'll sign you, but we want all your tour shirts. They'd be like, mm. fuck you. No way. You know, like that's just such a it's just yeah, such no a new, like new way that. to grab to grab money from the artist, you know, and but but that shows you that shows you the, the kind of economic decline that this industry is facing. Mm-hmm. If it was doing well by being able to sell recordings, which was its initial only income stream, um, then it wouldn't have to resort to such onerous practices. You know, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a necessity at all. And that's, you know, it, it's sad. It, it's funny to see the music industry, industry scramble mm-hmm. the way it, the way it seems to be doing to kind of prove that it's sort of like on an on the upswing when they do things like have 360 deals or, um, or, or basically not sign artists until they've got a certain number of views on their YouTube, you know, for their yeah, YouTube. Which you can fake. <laughs> that they've had to self-fund. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's so, I, I guess it's not arbitrary to them, but mm-hmm. in the terms, in greater terms of what actually makes music viable, it's unbelievably arbitrary because these things aren't going to matter. They didn't matter before and they're not going to matter in like 20 years. So mm-hmm. like you're basically determining the entire career of someone um, based on on criteria that don't even pertain to music, yeah, which is what you're listening to in the end anyway. Yeah, that's true. I've had several conversations with people about how, say, if you're an artist, you're a musician, you're pretty good at a musician, but you can't talk to people. You're not a very good person. You don't. How successful in today's age will that mm. person? How will that person be if they can't hold a conversation? And that the, who said that artists need to uh, have, hold a conversation with people? Who made that rule up? That's that's where you had a, a manager that would sort of deal with their client, and their client would then be spoken for in, on behalf, and there'd be a team of people working for this artist who 
was basically yeah. creating art and that was her only job and now yeah. you have to wear like five different hats and you have to yeah. be a social network wizard and you have to be uh yeah. good at talking to people which the, who made that rule up like i said before uh and, and you have to um you have to be a jack of all trades and that isn't as we know that's not always a good thing and no matter any trade you become you can, if you're a plumber you're a plumber if you're an arc welder you're an arc welder you're not you're a shitty plumber if you're an arc welder you know what i mean so how are you gonna <laughs> so how are we gonna make how are we gonna turn this boat around if everybody's on the hook to become all these things at once you know is there uh -huh. a you know how do we do this <laughs> that's a big answer well, big answer you, you can know, come up with that i, word. I Good. think it's What's that? I said that's a big answer if you get that answer because that's the long question, you know. Um, I think it's really about changing consciousness. Like mm. it's it's a very it's a very broad kind of it's it's a these are very broad issues to have to tackle. But mm. you know you have to remember that the things in music creation and um yeah in the in the greater music. Um, industry as well comes from a particular mindset that's generated in a state of fear. Hmm. This is all about fear. It's all about we're not making as much money as we used to make. That's really where it comes from. So how do we figure, how do we figure out new ways to generate revenue? So yeah. we think up all these stupid things. And over time, every, it catches on with people who aren't even trying or never get signed to a major record label. So they think all the same things. No one's going to notice me if I don't have a like massive social media presence, mm -hmm. you know, if my merch isn't good, mm -hmm. if I'm not making really great videos and stuff. And people forget over time that the only thing that anyone's going to really care about in the long run is how good your song was, you know, and how good you were as a performer. No one gives a shit about anything else. Not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's business people who sit in offices who don't even like music yeah. that care about this stuff, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, sure, like lots of people go on YouTube to, to like stream music, but at the end of the day, if the music doesn't have traction, no one cares anyway. I mean, yeah. if your video is flashy, someone might might watch it twice, but that's about it. Yeah. You know, if your song wasn't good or amazing, which is really what it should be, no one's going to care. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you pull artists away from the central idea that they should be focusing on their artistry, instead of focusing on skills, which, let's face it, people who are artists, not many of them were designed to be able to have like that kind of creative artistry and to be able to market themselves in the same way. That's basically having a very dysfunctional individual. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. You know, you're, yeah. creating, you're creating a that really shouldn't even exist. It's like a, it's like a griffin or something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this kind of creature that's sort of like with a lion's body and a parrot's head or something like that. It's like, nah, this is all wrong. You know, let's take the parrot or the lion. You put them together, you got a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. Like, yeah. the artist needs to be an artist. People make better music when they're able to focus on the thing that they do the best. You know, yeah. if you're a shitty artist, no amount of marketing is going to make you more successful. But people I have tried. <laughs> people have tried. Oh, yeah. And they're going to keep and they're going to keep on trying because they believe that that's the right way to be successful. And you know what? Yeah. It, to some, it it does work to some extent. Mm 
Yeah. But it won't go. It won't take you all the way unless you got behind you. Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I spoke you know? to a, a friend of mine up here. He used to be a and R for MCA Records Canada, and he told me stories like he'd bring Steve Earle. They'd come. He'd take care of him all while he was up here. You know, and the fact that Steve Earle came when he did into the limelight he couldn't have done it like in the, in a modern time, like just, and he writes such, you know, he wrote such, still does writes great songs. He's not pretty to look at. I mean that he kind of came in under the radar when it came to like the image based, uh, you know, yeah. rock, yeah. you know, or, or, uh, music business. And, and, um, you know, he'd tell, he'd say that, yeah, you need a team of people. You can't be a good publicist. They have great publicists. They'll be, you know, they have stylists, great stylists. All these people are a team of people that if you pick the right team, you have a very you have a better chance to to be seen yeah. and, and be heard and yep. and that's gone. Yep. Like that's gone. There's no money. There's nothing yeah. in that anymore. You know, there's publicists which yeah. make, you know, they do good. They do good work. They make sure that people are like we've met through a publicist. That's great, you know. But they, yes. they used to be on staff, you know, at record labels and things like that, you know? They, yeah, they used to be on staff. It's interesting because this is all kind of like a, it, it's kind of like a snake eating its own tail type scenario. Like records don't sell, you know, mm -hmm. and people then have to kind of figure out what's the cause of this. But what they wind up doing is they wind up looking for something that's that's kind of like a confirmation bias rather than looking at like facts and data. Why aren't records like, well, maybe, you know, maybe you're not making records of such high quality anymore. Like toward the end of the record company started really shooting for one hit wonder type records instead mm -hmm. of making records that had substance. Yeah. So you had an artist that would come with a, a record that had like one big song and they would never be able to repeat that again, you know. And there was a debate of that. At the same time, CD didn't, CDs didn't go down in price, they went up. And you didn't have access to music other than being able to get them on CDs. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to pay 18 to 20 bucks to buy a CD. Yeah. And people were really pissed off at that. So when you were able to suddenly steal music off the internet, it was kind of like, oh, really? You're going to make me pay 20 bucks for this one shitty song that I'm going to hate in six months? You know, mm -hmm. like, forget it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but the record company didn't see it like that. And, and it kind of went around and around in a, in a cycle. So the record companies began to lose money. Yeah. They began to pull funding from things like being able to, you know, being able to market records properly, funding artists. You know, the cycle keeps fulfilling itself. And it all comes from making these really stupid business-based decisions with artistry once again. It's all about how do we make more money and put less into what we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Now, if any, if any person who made any other commodity, like shoes, for example, did stuff like this, like let's make a commodity of lesser quality, but still sell it for what, you know, for what we expect to get for the same commodity of, of greater quantity, your business would fail. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're making high-end shoes, let's say, yeah. I'm going to make my shoes shittier. What's going to happen? Some, they're going to either try and find your, your same shoes for much less money on a black market, or they're going to they're going to go to a different manufacturer and get them there. You know, their people are going to seek alternatives. You know, same mm -hmm. thing in industry. You make it you make a product of more inferior quality. What people what are people going to do? They're not going to want, want to buy it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. They're going or they're going to want to acquire it through different means. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I mean when Spotify came around, 
and that was sort of seemed like the savior of it all in a way. Like, oh, we can pay for a monthly, uh, you know, a monthly subscription and get music as much music as we want. And I don't know how true this is, but I, wasn't it like the labels just giving catalog to Spotify for pennies on the dollar just to just to get it on? Like um, they, they all the labels made backdoor deals with Spotify. I mean, they invested money into Spotify, um, but they i they the rates that they agreed to i think people on the artist and publishing side are still scratching their heads going like what the hell <laughs> you know just because you own these masters and you're doing all this making all these deals um you know the 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 pay the pay you know you get virtually nothing for all, you know for 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 many for millions of plays um but it's interesting because like the division of those of those royalties like i think it's 0. 0.003 um i can't remember what the fraction is but it's like a small a tiny fraction of a penny every time a piece of music gets played and what's interesting is that the record company they get like the entire i, I think that they get like this they get a it's a 73 30 split between them and Spotify. Mm -hmm. Spotify get the 30 and the record company gets the 70. From that 70, the record company takes about 46% and then everything else is divvied up appropriately. And for, I, I think eventually the artist winds up with about 12 or 18%. I can't remember of like, you know, that fraction of a penny. Um, and it's, look at the economics of that business. It really isn't. Oh, it's not a winning recipe for success. Like, no. you know, Spotify since inception has never broken even. They've never got, or I should, yeah, they've never gone into the black. They've been in the red since inception. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I mean, let's let's consider the fact that when they did their, their IPO. Um, all the majors sold off 50% shares in Spotify, which is a really strong vote of no confidence. It's mm -hmm. a way of saying like, we feel that this model has gone as far as it's going to go and they're not going to make any more money. And I think just a few weeks ago, Warner music sold off all the rest of its, of its stake in Spotify mm -hmm. um, for like 500 million. I mean, they, they basically turned, an initial investment of like a hundred, hundred twenty-five million into like maybe a close to a billion, something like that. And they, you know, they've they basically sold it all. They've made their money, and I think that they're saying this model isn't going to make. It's not going to make a whole lot more money from our perspective. That's insane. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so it's crazy. So who's gonna like? Where are we? Like, what's happening? Like, I know. I was funny when you're saying all these things about musicians. Like, they're basically, they're getting screwed out of all this. I thought, what if there's a conspiracy here to make artists suffer even more than they have to to write great music, to then turn it into more money for the, you know, for the labels? It's it's a conspiracy, well, but it's like, wow. What if that's a thing? What if someone's sitting in a dark room, like, how are we gonna? That would be. That would be delightful. <laughs> that would be delightful. I think that <laughs> I think the reality is that there that the people who run these companies from the business end of things don't have a long term strategy for any of this. They basically are looking to see how much money 
they can make right now in the here and the now. Uh, I think that they know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, as for record companies, they've given up pretty much on making money off sales of any kind of physical product. That's really not their business at this point. Mm-hmm. Their business is more about trying to earn, trying to generate whatever income streams, um, product placement for their artists and for their music. And basically as investment houses, essentially like looking for ways that they can invest in a Spotify so they can kind of generate profit somehow to be able to prop up their prop up their shitty business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, someone told me that either this, I, I don't remember when their fiscal year ends, but someone said, Oh yeah, the music industry made $43 billion last year. And I was like, Give me a break. The music industry did not make $43 billion. They probably didn't even, they didn't make half $43 billion. You know, mm-hmm. several, like a, a month and a half ago, what's his name? Drake, his record came out. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his record debuted, obviously, because he's well known at the top of the charts at number one. Do you remember how many copies that record sold? No. No. Because it was, it was significant. Yeah. It was the lowest selling number one record of all time. 29,000 copies of a record. <laughs> now, let's, you know, yeah. to be fair, his artist is mainly people who look at music online. Yeah. They're streaming shit, you know, or they're downloading stuff, from, you know, from someplace, you know. So maybe they're not people who are inter- in, interested in physical um physical product anymore doesn't matter Nine thousand copies of a record in its first week from an artist who is that well known is cataclysmic yeah it's bad you know yeah and that tells you that tells you what kind of business is this is these motherfuckers are flying this plane by the seat of their pants mm-hmm. they don't know what the hell they're doing they don't know where the hell they're going they're not in technology only to the extent where they can make money off it yeah um they didn't they didn't do anything about it when when napster started like if these if these people had tried to make a deal with napster right away and if they'd embraced what was happening you know and seen that they could have actually used it as a tremendous um way to sell more product we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation right now that's true you know but I remember because I was working inside of Atlantic Records at that time, and I saw how these people looked at this technology. The internet was like, it was it was all stuff that was going to pass. It was a blip. No one, you know, big deal to them, you mm-hmm. know. And they just saw like they, were, they saw their businesses. They they basically everything was business as usual. They just wanted to keep on going and have their nice expense accounts and you know, take their chauffeured cars driving all over the place and running up expensive meals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that's the way their lives were supposed to go. And it changed drastically for them. No one, you mm-hmm. know, no one was paying attention to what was happening at all. Yeah, when it was all going down, I I I had a theory. I had a theory is that they couldn't stop that. There's no way they could stop that. So therefore for them to try to mount a case to try and stop it would cost way more than their return would be later on. So therefore, they were developing, like, remember they had watermarked CDs 
that were like that was a failure <laughs> they didn't work and then they tried things and what i thought is we'll try oh, that was great yeah we'll try things that'll sort of maybe slow it down but we think but someone is going to figure out a way to crack this code so rather than pay for someone to try and figure out how to f- break what we fixed let's let them break it and then we'll just put a little thumb in the dike and every time there's like a little thing we can fix we'll fix that and ultimately at the end of it all we're all going to be back to where it was in 1978 when we're doing tons of blow and hanging out. And you know, you know what I mean? It's going to be like that. It's going to be great. But that never happened. So that was 10 years ago. I I, I think, I think that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, um, I think everyone was, everyone was basically waiting because human beings tend to be very passive, Mm -hmm. um, under the right circumstances. If they don't have a reason to be proactive about stuff, Mm -hmm. they, they don't like change. They would prefer not to have to deal with having to kind of get up off their ass thing because it's seriously in need of repair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and that's how the record and the music industry was. Right. They didn't want to have to deal with the problem, but they created a problem. Mm-hmm. They created a problem by putting subpar product out into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, by not giving people what they wanted. And I'm not talking in terms of styles of music. I'm talking records that had mo- that didn't have more than one like really good song on them, and yeah. then expecting them to pay through the nose for a CD. Yeah. You know, I'm taking artists right out of a nightclub instead of like giving them, you know, putting them in like a serious development state and saying, oh, "We're not going to sign you, you know, but we are going to give you a bunch of money to live on, and we want you to write songs because we believe in you." Yeah. You know, we're developing careers the way people used to do. I mean, the music industry has never been perfect place. Yeah. In fact, it's pretty bad. It always has been. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there was a time when there was artist development, when people really were prepared to put a lot of money and a lot of effort into an artist. And it was for no other reason than the fact that they believed in them, yeah. that they saw potential. And they didn't necessarily have any guarantee that this artist was going to be huge. But they were like, I see. I'd like to take the opportunity to to bring this out, mm-hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to 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 share this with other people, to see how far we can go with it, you yeah. know. Yeah. And maybe that would be two records, three, four, five records. It didn't matter, yeah. you know. And they would lose money sometimes, and that wasn't good. People's jobs would be on the line, but like, people were willing to take a risk. Yeah, and that's sort of where indies took over because indie labels were like, yeah, we can do that. We can work at a lower budget and we can put more records out and we can basically our, our demographic are the people that you know we know we're closer to them and we can make records that specifically are catered to that demographic and our label's um, moral upstanding. But even Fat Records had to lay people off in the early 2000s. They were like, we're done. We can't, we can't afford this. We just mm-hmm. can't afford to keep putting records out that lose money. And and even that label that was considered like somewhat of a strong label, even Epitaph, like and you know that stuff too. Like when Offspring broke big on Epitaph, they were selling fifty thousand units out of the back of Epitaph Records in, in skid loads of it, you know, yep. barely. And Brett yep. Gurr, which is like wrapping them up, you know, and sending them out in the van, you know, to sell them all. Don't know where they were going, but yep. it's it seemed like the yep. the indie labels even got bit in the ass too. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, you know, I, I, but I think that there's a recipe that people have been following for a long time. It's never really yielded what they believe that it's yielding, mm-hmm. you know, and it's this whole safe, scared kind of approach to making records, not taking any chances, don't stick your neck out, conform to what's, fam- what's 
what's known, what's familiar. You know, don't try and break any new ground. Give the audience what it wants. Give yeah. the all these things that are like that that really run completely contrary to what music is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, as an art form. Yeah. And what artistry is as an expression of humanity. You know, I mean, when you try and rein things like that in and try and turn them into into something that can be completely commoditized like that, though, it's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing, yeah, I mean, I always said the music and industry were too, like, it's an oxymoron. They're, they're not supposed, those two, two words are not supposed to go together. <laughs> you know, industry, great. Well, but they, they can. Yeah. They can. And, 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 and they have for a long time, you know, yeah. without a music industry, there wouldn't be, you know, Bob Dylan's or Aretha Franklin's or Bruce Springsteen's, you know, like people in the music industry are very much responsible for helping these people develop careers. Mm hmm you know, like it's, there was an immense amount of support at many points in the history of this business where artists, you know, artists did get a tremendous amount of support from people working in the, you know, who, who had vision, who could see that there was something there. Um, there's always been a very uncomfortable relationship between music and commerce, but it exists and mm -hmm. it exists in, at its inception, for no other reason than people need to be need to earn money off their work. Do a job, you get paid for it. Yeah. It's simple, yeah. you know. And from there, other people, because they had to take, they had to have someone minding the till, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, other people got involved to protect that investment. You know, yeah. and uh, obviously, from there grew rights and you know ownership and you know. And legal and legalities, um, and uh, you know, the, and the industry sprang from that. But essentially, the idea not a bad one. People just have an innate capability to be able to corrupt things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, you. You know. Yeah, and nobody can determine or look ahead and look into a, a magic crystal ball and say what's the trend going to be. I mean, I think there's a statistic out there with how many how many number one singles there needs to be in a month? I mean, there's like a, a quota of them, you know, and how much content needs to be created and how fast your career can be based on that statistic. And it's, uh, it's very scary. And I, I, was, I was thinking about this a while ago about, <laughs> about age, you know, how old you are determines how much better of an artist you become, um, how more grounded about, it, uh, about your life and, and then it makes you have better perspective but it also means you have a mortgage, you have kids, you have all these things to pay for that then hinders the art. So therefore, and it sort of ties into what you were saying about development, is that there's a reason why it's a young person's um, career, because they can say, you know what, I don't care. Take my apartment, take my Ford Fiesta. I, I don't, you know what I mean? I'm fine. You know, I don't need my whatever. I can, I can live on ramen, you know? But then again, they're 20 years old. They're not fully, their brains aren't even fully developed, you know? And here they are. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> They're fully creating, our, you know, the the taste makers or the the hit makers of what's happening, and it's it's it seems weird. I mean, it'd be interesting to sort of go in a weird quasi world to say that, you know, as you get older, you do get better, more refined, and more better at things. And we have it though. I think we, we're in a good age though. I mean, we have guy like Bruce Springsteen still, you know, he's still out there kicking away, and there's like bands like Wilco are still putting records out, and there's bands like. Death Cab for Cutie just put a new record out, like all good and interesting stuff, and not 
super young at the same time. So maybe there's hope there. Well, you know, I mean, why, sh why shouldn't there be? I don't think that there's any kind of exclusivity to being an artist, being a performer. I mean, I, th I think it's not very, it doesn't look very dignified on some people, but mm -hmm. like, you know, there are some people who can pull it off really well, you know, people who exude it. I mean, I, it's funny because I'm not like the world's biggest fan. At the same time, I respect his artist artistry immensely. Mm -hmm. um, and he's one of these people who is capable of being able to get up on a stage anywhere in the world and just by virtue of the authority that he projects because of who he is yeah. and because of what he's done and because he knows that he belongs there, you don't really question it, mm -hmm. you know? He's because he's that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you can get up on a stage and do that, then you have every right and every business to be there. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. So, so you've taken a whole new thing now. You, 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 you start producing bands from afar. Is this a thing? Like, because this is how I sort of got to. I got your uh, what you've been doing. You've been, you've been taking on bands and doing a sort of an online production um, service, or is this a? Uh, I mean, it's not on, like people do do that from, you know, they will help produce, but is this something you, is this new for you or you've been doing it a while? I've been doing it for a little while. Um, it's not really, it's not really producing an album. Because uh, mm -hmm. I don't really think that, I think it would be kind of sketchy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been done though. <laughs> you know, to not be in a room with people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it has. It, it kind of, the, the prospect frightens me, but like, <laughs> <laughs> Um, what, I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, uh, incorporate elements of the recording process that I feel are being lost. And one of those processes is pre-production. Um, I've been noticing over time that more and more bands have no idea what this is, that a lot of prepared to take a bunch of songs that they wrote. I wrote these a week ago. I'm ready to record them. And without any kind of preparation or any much thought, go straight into a studio and record them, which is absolute insanity. Um, you know, and I, I've heard people make the case of like, oh, you know, what about spontaneity? And like, you know, like this artist did it that way, that artist did it that way. Like people just kind of gone in and like recorded records like that. You know, like Muddy Waters did it like that. And I'm like, are you <laughs> Muddy Waters, motherfucker? Like, <laughs> no, you're not, you're not Muddy Waters. You're some like, you're some person yeah. who basically knows nothing about this process. And you're making, you're basically making a bullshit argument to support something that make up makes absolutely no sense and has no foundation in reality. Mm -hmm. Like stop and think for a second about song structure, about what it is that you're trying to do. The strength of your song, as you were saying before, is one of the most vital aspects of what's going to, uh, you know, what's going to create a great foundation for your record. You know, now, if you haven't thought this stuff out carefully, if you haven't looked into it and seen where it could actually be falling apart, you know, that there are going to be in instances in your arrangement, for example, that literally could just could stop your song dead. Even if you've got like an incredible melody on top, what if there's stuff happening in the rhythm section that completely like derails it? Mm -hmm. You know, 
you don't pay attention to this stuff. All you do is hear the melody, but you don't realize you've destroyed your song. You know, mm -hmm. there's no pre, like people are, are stopping doing pre-production. And one of the reasons for this is because it costs money. Because if you're a producer who's working with an artist, right? And you have to two or three months going back and forth with them and then maybe spending a week or two in rehearsal with them before they go into a record and they've got maybe like 10, 20 grand to make a record. What does that leave you with? You've basically been working with this artist for like basically chump change, you know, worked your ass off and you've got nothing to show for it, you know, yeah. but at the same time, the artist needs preparation. Most people now will say, will say like, okay, you know, I'll take X amount of dollars. They'll go in with the artist, cut a bunch of songs, and that'll be the end of the record. You know, that's not the way to make a record. It's I'm, simple. I'm so you glad know? you said that. <laughs> no, it's the truth. Yeah. You deprive the artist of so much. Yeah. If you're, if you're going to go in and, t and do a record this way, if you're not willing to take the time to help the artist look at his music and go check this out. This part isn't working. Did you consider this chord here? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Did you? Are you noticing the way, the, you know, the, the way the bass drum and the bass guitar are not are not syncing together and not, and not supporting your vocal melody right here? Because all those things are cumulative. They all add up. Mm -hmm. And many of the things that I've just described are elements that can that can destroy a piece of music if they're not attended to. Absolutely. But yeah. people don't think like that. No. You know, I mean, I, I, I collect um, bootleg recordings of, you know, uh, of people's um, record of projects, you know, by Beatles and, mm -hmm. and Led Zeppelin, because I'm interested. I, I'm not like, I, I'm not like a crazy collector guy who needs to have this stuff. It's interesting to see where their ideas came from and what kind of process they went through to refine them. yeah yeah that's why these recordings are so interesting to listen to yeah like one of my favorite examples is um that song no quarter um off houses of the um which everyone knows mm -hmm. um now there's a ver a rehearsal version of this song which i believe is is its inception it's a bossa nova song <laughs> Think about that for a second. Yeah. When you hear the da 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 da, yeah, that bit right before they go into the chorus, you know, because the, the song originally goes do 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 da do do da do da do do da do da 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 do yeah, and which is, I mean, it's cool enough. It's not Led Zeppelin, but these days. An artist would have taken something like that, and they would have said, "This is cool. The melody's great. These parts are awesome. Let's go record it." They wouldn't have thought, "Wait a second. Yeah, maybe, maybe we need to work because that's what happened. Yeah, it got worked on, and it eventually became what we know." Totally. Did you see the um, "Sympathy for yeah. the Devil" um, when they were tracking that "Sympathy for the Devil"? They were starting it off. There's a you. I saw it on YouTube. It's just starting that like you tell they're in the same session, and then eventually it's like 
it start it starts turning into sympathy for the devil. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, it starts off as a really slow and kind of weird. Then it's too fast, and then they just show how the song is just being, and then. And not everybody can have that joy to be in a big, expensive recording studio. It's probably somewhere nope. south of France to to work out something. And that's um. And it's so interesting you're saying that because I play in a band, which is shitty punk rock band, but we were going to make a record. But I I usually end up recording it, so I don't end up to play on it. So this time I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to learn parts while we're tracking. So they came to my basement and we just banged it out. And the drummer's like, I don't know if I'm playing too good. I said, that doesn't matter right now. What matters is that we're going to work through this and we can write our parts. And then when it's time to record, we can record our record in two days, you know, because yeah. we're prepared, you know, yeah. and that that's yeah, sort of exactly. like, who said that was a bet, you know, <laughs> that's in, in pre-production. I, I've, I made an industry out of it because back in sort of like 10 or 15 years ago, my studio was the pre-production, you know what I mean? In kind of Toronto based mm-hmm. place to come low rent you know what i mean like and and fast and things you know ended up coming pretty good you know but but the problem with it is the better the demo the shittier it is to record that song later you know so for me it's like okay so <laughs> you know what i mean like it's easier to have something that you can oh we can make that better you know or here's the and you know we were talking about pre-production just the song speeds in on a whole can change a whole record. So if you all of your songs oh, are at 140 dB or 140 beat, beats per second, you're like, "Oh, we have the same record here now." You know, um, mm-hmm. some 41 actually when they were tracking uh, one of their songs had to go back and redo it because it was too fast. You know, back to cello, set it, it up. Makes all the difference. In, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, you know, but people are really less inclined to, to do that. That and one of the and the big reason is economics. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there still needs to be people still need to have the ability to be able to access that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's really what I wanted to provide. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. I mean, we all we're all we all got laptops. We all got a few mics here and there and you know, some have better demo studios than others, but that is the place where the song is written, but that's not where it needs to live, you know? And that, I guess where you come in is to sort of say, is make them think differently about what's happening in the structure and things like that. And you can do that from afar because you're just setting them off on the right path at that point, right? Well, it's all about analysis, you know? It's all about getting into the, into the songs. And it's also about having something, having something viable to present to an artist. You know, again, goes back to what you're saying before go back and write more songs what does that mean Mm -hmm. you know uh but if you can actually tell an artist specifics about what's wrong with what it is that they're doing not what's right you know Mm -hmm. because you can blow smoke up a person's ass and it'll it won't do them any good at all they haven't gotten anything from that except they may feel better about themselves for about 10 or 15 minutes in the end Mm -hmm. if you can send them away with a whole lot of useful critique about what they're doing where they can really, that's insightful, where they can really look into their work and go, oh my God, or, they even, or, or even better, is when you confirm for them something that they have suspected mm-hmm. all along, but weren't sure what it was mm-hmm. and couldn't put a name on it until you come to them and tell them what it is. And they're like, I've been thinking this the whole time and I didn't know what it was and now I do. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most inspiring things that can happen for an artist. And that also, that kind of confirmation is part of what really kind of, it jumpstarts this creative process where they'll actually go back and listen to everything and they all of a sudden become their own hardest critic. 
you know, then it becomes, it's not only, you're not, they've not only let someone else in to help help them hone their music, they have also been become empowered to the extent where they can look analytically and objectively into their own music yeah. and see where things actually aren't working. Yeah. And that is a great gift. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I really do. It's really easy as an artist sitting in your basement writing what you think is going to be the next uh, Let It Be or something, but when someone says to them, that's going to be the next Let It Be, like, holy shit, that, that really does raise the... Or, or it says, if you did these three things then, you know, and that they never would think of because you have the experience. You know, that's the other thing is like, if you're yeah. a musician and you write songs, you have a certain way of writing songs. And if someone says to them, hey, have you tried thinking about this a little bit differently? Or, you know, some people write melodies and write the chords under it. Some people write lyrics then write songs to it. Like, if you get people thinking a little bit differently, it only, in, yeah, it only strengthens and puts more tools in their bag, I guess, right? That's wonderful. It, it really is. And ultimately, that's what you want people to walk away with mm -hmm. you don't want that like to me the worst thing that i could dependency in someone and that's one reason why i think being so incisive and being so direct and help and being helpful mm -hmm. to an artist is the best thing because it gives them the ability to be able to critique their own work they can walk away from the situation and not feel like they are able to do this on their own that they've got like a whole new way of looking at their own music that they never had before, mm -hmm. or they realize that they were, that they're better off with the assistance of someone else. Yeah. Um, you know, you've, you've opened them up on so many different levels and you've also made it so that they don't need to feel dependent. I mean, sure. If they want, if they need and want this process again, that's fine. But they, but it, it's the kind of thing where you need to feel empowered as an artist. This is something that will empower you. And that's one of the most important things because artists, if any, if they need anything right now, it's to feel empowered about what they do. That's a great way to leave off, man. It's, <laughs> thank you so much for, uh, for, for doing this show. I, I, I've, uh, I, I feel inspired. I want to go write songs now. <laughs> that's awesome, man. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So thanks for doing the show and we'll hopefully talk to you again some other time. It was really nice to meet you. Yeah, man, I wasn't too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Mr. Michael Beinhorn. Beinhorn. That was Michael Beinhorn. He's a producer, record producer. Nice guy, right? Right? That was fun. Thanks, everybody, for helping out the show by going to Amazon. Thanks for shopping at Amazon. That was great. Yeah, it makes a mark. It helps the show out. You don't even know it. It helps the show out just by just for just for the fact you buy something. You can buy whatever you want. I don't know what you're buying. But it'd be fun if you let me know what you bought. How about this? If you tell me what you bought and show me the receipt and it's a cool object, I will send you a t-shirt. How about that? Sounds fair, right? Cool. Okay, everybody. Next week, um, I have my old friend Greg Bolton on the show. He's a good man. He's a, he's a musician. He's a guy. He's a does all sorts of stuff and he works in the biz and he's fun to talk to and yeah probably one of my favorite peoples on earth so next week we'll see you again have a great um what is it where we're we coming up to a long weekend have a great long weekend um for you people down in the states i think it's uh i don't know what it is but for us, us up here it's labor day so have a good one we'll talk to you later bye